Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that we can gather here to discuss your word. And Lord, I pray that just as the Old Testament prophet said that there would come a day when you write these words on our heart. Lord, I pray that we would have this word written on our heart today. That, Lord, that we would put down any of our self-sufficiency and our uh, self-trust and self-love and that we would come to the throne of grace and that we would look to you for everything. Lord God, I pray that you would be with all of us as the word is going to be preached. Lord, I pray that it would be the word that is preached and not my ideas. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me in a way that only you could get the glory, only you could get the credit. And Lord, I pray that you would grow this church deep in the gospel. And Lord, as we go out, I pray that you would use us out in the world for your kingdom and for your glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So, I want to just first of all say welcome. We've got uh, a couple people who are guests tonight, and I just want to say welcome to the Shepherd's Church. Uh, the church for us was, uh, we planted this out of a conviction that the Bible is the word of God and it must be preached. So with that, I want us to look at Jude, and we're going to be in 17 through 25. Now, if you remember last week, in verses 8 through 16, Jude leveled a case against the false prophets that were coming into his church, the false teachers that were coming into his church. And what he did was, is he organized this case against them, and he really leveled three indictments that would lead to their unmistakable judgment. The first indictment was that they hate God's word. It says in the text that they leaned into their own, uh, their own dreams and their feelings, and they reviled angelic witnesses. Essentially, what they were being indicted for is that they hated God's word. The second indictment was that they hated God's people. The text says that they were like hidden reefs that destroy. They were like clouds without water that disappoint God's people. They were like wild waves that disappoint and lead sailors astray, just like Christians are led astray by false doctrine. And they drag people away like a wandering star that explodes into black darkness. These are vivid metaphors that Jude uses to describe these people. And the point was, is that they not only hate God's word, they hate God's people. And then the final point that he made last week is that they hate godly living. They're like Cain in their anger. They're like Balaam in their jealousy. And they're like Korah in their desire for power. These are the men who had snuck into Jude's congregation and the case against them was total. And the thing that we learned, the thing that convicted them was not necessarily their sin. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person has fallen short of God's glorious standard. The thing that convicted the people in Jude's church was that they didn't have an advocate. There was no one there to stand for them. Remember that we read in verse 9 that Moses, in the apocryphal book of 1 Enoch, there's this story about Moses and the, and the Satan comes to claim his body and the angel says, no, the Lord rebuke you. And remember we learned that the only reason why Christians do not also suffer the judgment is because we have an advocate in Jesus Christ, who that if the enemy were to ever come and try to claim us, he, we cannot be claimed because Christ's sacrificial death on the cross has already claimed us, and we cannot be lost now that we have been found. So that was the point of last week. This week, Jude is going to enter us into the final section of the book. This is verses 17 through 25, and these verses are Jude's treatment on how to encourage the church that's been suffering. Jude is essentially going to take his focus now off of the false teachers, off of the wolves, and he's going to focus on his congregation, and he's going to encourage them with four different truths over the next four weeks. Those are going to be that we are to remember, which is what we're going to talk about today, that we are to remain in God's love, and that we are to rescue the broken. That's week three. And then week four, we are to rest in the truths of Christ. This is how the book is going to end with these four poignant examples. And today we're going to talk about why it's so important for Christians that we remember as we await the judgment of God. So turn with me to verse 17 as we begin our time in this uh, these verses. It says, but you, beloved, ought to remember 
the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That they were saying to you in the last time there will be mockers following after, after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause division, who are worldly minded and devoid of the spirit. Now think about it this way. Jude is talking to a group of people who have been persecuted and who have been hurt by false teachers, who have been, uh, all of this stuff is going on, and he is telling them that the fundamental thing that they have to do is they have to be a people who remember. They have to be a people who remember not just who they are, but who Christ is. And what we're going to see today is that there's three things that we must remember as we live in a world that hates truth and as we live in a time where Jesus has not yet returned, where false teachers still exist in the church, where all kinds of trouble is happening. We have to remember three things, and if we remember those three things, it will bring us hope, it will bring us peace, and it will bring us joy. Those three things that we're going to talk about today is that we must remember to stand on the word of God alone. The second thing that we're going to see is that we must stand on the Holy Spirit's power alone. And then finally, as we end, we're going to talk about we're going to stand faithfully until Christ calls us home. The first thing is we must stand on the word of God alone. Jude says in verse 17, Beloved, you ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. In opposition to the false teachers who had forgotten the word, Christians are called to remember the word and to not be like these men. Destruction had come to the false teachers because they had forgotten the word of God. So Jude commands his church to remember the words of life, the word of God. Now, he uses this phrase, the words of the apostles. As we learn in verse 3 and throughout the book, that is Jude's way of saying the Bible. The words that the Holy Spirit authored inside the apostles that they handed down to the individual churches and that were eventually written down into the Bible that we have, that's what Jude is saying. Remember the teachings of the apostles, a.k.a. the Bible. And the reason that Jude says this is he's contrasting with these false teachers. These false teachers have come in and they've said many words. They've said many things to try to undermine the faith of this church. They've said many things to undermine Christ. So he's saying, don't listen to their words. Listen to the words of the apostles. That's the authentic message of Christ, not the counterfeit, this new flashy counterfeit that's being told to you. And this is a relevant thing for us to understand as we live in a society today where everyone is so concerned about novelty and new ways of presenting the truth. We are called to remember the good truth that was revealed 2,000 years ago in the Bible, and it is still good today, as good as it was 2,000 years ago. If somebody comes preaching a false gospel, we are to reject it because we have the gospel of Christ. We are to remember that we stand by the word of God alone. 500 years ago in the Reformation, when the Catholic Church had taken the doctrines of the Bible and had twisted them and manipulated them, the rally cry of the Reformation was sola scriptura, the word of God alone. That is the people that we are. We want to lean into that because when we are attacked, the word of God is our defense. When we are being misled, the word of God is our guide. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. When we come into trouble and when we are doubting, the word of God is true and it gives us hope. For every problem that the church has faced from Jude's time all the way until our time, the word of God has an answer. The word of God is central to everything that we do. And when it is preached in truth and when it is clung to by God's people and when it is upheld and honored, the church lives and is vibrant and is healthy. But when the word of God is maligned and when the word of God is thrown away and when the word of God is undermined and new doctrines come in, the church always dies every time, every time. Jude is saying that the health of the community and the individual Christian is fundamentally tied to how you view the Bible. Do you believe that it's God's holy word? Or do you believe that it's just some words by some people and it's helpful if it's helpful, but not if it's not? If you believe that, then you'll eventually slide into error. But if you make the word of God central to everything that you do, it will bring life. 
Now, when Jude calls us to remember the Bible, remember the word, he's not telling us to simply think about the Bible that we have on our shelf. He's not telling us to think about the new Bible that we want to buy that has the coloring pages in it, and you can do all, those are great. What he's saying when he tells us to remember the word, he's saying to have a healthy and ongoing, committed relationship to the word of God. And he is so serious about this that he commands it. Not only to read it, but to remember it. Think about it this way. You cannot remember what you have not committed to memory. Jude is saying not only to read the Bible, but to get it into you so that it will produce fruit in you. Now, Jude uses a type of verb called an imperative. In English, if I'm going to command someone to do something, I might use exclamation points. I might say, I command you to do X. In Greek, you use an imperative. And this is the first time in the book that Jude has used an imperative, which means that he thought this thing was so important that he would need to command it. He's not saying that it would be a good idea to think about the Bible or the Word of God. He's saying that you must get into the Word of God so that the Word of God can get into you. It's like an apple tree. If the apple seeds just lie in the bag, that's great, but you'll never have any apple trees. You actually have to dig and plant it. And it has to be in warm soil. If it's frozen soil, it won't work. And in the same way, the word of God is just words on a page if it doesn't actually get opened and if it doesn't actually get into you. And if your heart is cold and, and not receptive to it, it's just carbon and leather and words on a page. What Jude is saying is not only read it, don't only look at it, that let it get inside of you. Because when the word of God gets inside of you, it will produce fruit. Now, when we think about commands as Americans, we don't like commands. I don't like commands. When I drive in the, in the country in New Hampshire somewhere and I see a 25 mile an hour speed limit, a speed limit sign, I'm like, it's totally arbitrary. I want to defy that and go 45, maybe. We are American people who want to be free, autonomous agents. We're democratic people. We're not all Democrats, but we're democratic. We want to vote on everything. We're the people that say, give me liberty or give me death. What a strong statement. If you don't give me my freedom, I want to die. That's what New Hampshire says. Live free or kill me, essentially. We have this idea in America that it's unloving for anyone to tell us anything if we don't want to do it. So when we come to the Bible, it's really difficult for us when we are commanded to do things. But the Bible, we must remember, was not written in a democracy. The Bible was written under a monarchy. And for every moment of faithful biblical witness, it's when the people of God viewed him as their righteous king. There's 613 commands in the Old Testament given by God to his people. There's hundreds of commands in the New Testament. And it's not because God just wants to show his authority and push us around. The commands are given because God is wiser than us. He's more intelligent than us. He's more loving than us. And he's trying to protect us. It's like, it's like a mother who looks across the room and, and yells, Stop! when her two-year-old child is about to grab a cup of coffee. She's being authoritative in that moment because she doesn't want the child to get burned because the child is ignorant. It doesn't know. How often does, do we get clear commands in the word of God? No. And yet out of ignorance, we defy God and we get burned. God is giving us commands because he loves us. God is giving us commands because he knows what's best for us. Now, if God says, this was something that I had to ponder this week, if God says, just read the word, dwell on the word, let the word get in you richly, why don't we just obey? Why don't we just do what God says? It's kind of like, I was thinking about it this way, a person who's clinically depressed. They go to the doctor and the doctor commands them, essentially, writes down on a prescription, you must take this particular medicine. And if you take this medicine, it's going to help you. Why doesn't the person take it? When they take it, their whole life sometimes gets 
out of track. Their mind gets off course. They, they, they become depressed. Why don't they just take the medicine? And then I ask myself, why is it that we don't just listen to what the good physician has already told us, that the word of God is life, instead of allowing ourselves to be so spiritually depressed? Is it any wonder that we often struggle with spiritual depression when we don't read his word, when we don't have a relationship with him by understanding what he has said to us in the Bible? Jude says, beloved, you ought to remember the words that were spoken because he wants them to have hope. He wants them to have joy as they await Christ's return. This is a command, but it's very loving. Think about it. Our lives have this innate ability to push God out if we're not careful. But if we're not careful, our life will push God out and let everything else come in. Think about it. Jobs, kids, families, schedules, and everything else ends up choking out the word of God out of our life. And without a steady diet of the word of God in our life, we'll be famished. It's easy. And what I love about Jude is that he does not do this shaming them. He doesn't say, you know, well, how dare you guys? You didn't do this and you didn't do that. Jude doesn't do that. He doesn't shame them. He doesn't guilt them. He doesn't say, well, you know, to get you back on track, we're going to make you sign up for a year-long Bible plan, and I'm going to be your accountability partner, and if you don't do it, then I'm going to, you're really going to be in trouble, and you're going to have to go to church discipline. He doesn't do any of that. That's not the kind of commanding that Jude is doing here. Jude is a loving pastor who knows what's best for his people. It's, he's not a dictator. He's kind of like a guy who stands on the edge of a boat and throws out a life vest. He might yell and say, grab the vest. But he's doing it because he knows that that's where life is. He's doing it not to be a dictator. He's doing it to be loving. It's certainly commanding. It's certainly authoritative. But it is also the most loving thing that Jude can do. Now, I want to talk about for a second the word remember here. In the, in the Greek, this is a, an interesting word. There's a couple different words that Jude could have used to talk about when he talks about remembering. There's some where the word would, would almost be like remember the good old days and remember the things that happened in the past. It's not the word that Jude uses. He uses the word memnescomai. I love saying Greek words. Isn't it fun? Memnescomai. And what this word means is to recall information from memory. To recall something that is already in you. This word assumes that you have a prior knowledge. This word assumes that you've already been reading the Bible, depositing it inside of you. It's not just words on a page anymore. It's in you. So when Jude calls them to remember, he's calling them to think about, meditate on, dwell on the truth that they already know. That's fascinating to me. Now, I would say that in American Christianity, let's just make this personal to us, we have the greatest proliferation of Bibles that have ever existed. There has never been a time in human history where more people had access to the Word of God, and I would say that there's never been a time in American history where, where so many people had no idea what the Word of God says. We have more Bibles than we actually know what to do with, and I would I think we would all agree that there is a biblical literacy problem in the country. Now, I don't say this at all to shame or guilt. I say this like Jude throwing a life raft. If you have no relationship with the Word of God, if you're not reading the Bible, I just encourage you to try it. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to do it. Just try it. Get into the Word of God, and then you can go to where Jude is saying to go because he doesn't stop there. He says to study it and to understand the doctrines of Scripture so that they will be a reservoir of truth that's built up in your mind so that when the trouble comes, it'll be there. I've heard it said by a pastor. I can't remember who it was, so I can't give credit. Uh, we'll just pretend like I said it so I can get the credit. The, uh, the Holy Spirit can supernaturally remind you of a Bible verse that you've never read, but he doesn't do that. The, the whole story of my life and the story of everyone's life that I've read on this issue is that the Holy Spirit normally reminds you and encourages you of the verses that you've read. 
and the verses that you've studied and the verses that you've put inside your heart. Now, he can remind you of those other verses. That's just not what he normally does. The fundamental contention that Jude is trying to get at is that we must be students of the word of God. We must get the word into us. If we want to know how to navigate this life with peace during the storms or chaos or hope when everything seemed hopeless, then we have to get into the Bible and begin stockpiling it in our brains like a farmer, a farmer who fills his barns full of grain because the winter's coming. Well, while today is today, we fill our minds full of the truths and the glorious beautiful doctrines of the word of God so that when the spiritual famine happens or when life happens or when it feels like it's the winter of your soul, you have it and it's in there. Charles Spurgeon once said, a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. That's one of my favorite quotes. A Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. And the point is not that they just have an old Bible that their grandma and grandpa had and that the binding is broken and, and just by nature of the fact that they have a broken Bible doesn't mean that their life is somehow better. What it means is the person who gets into it, highlights it and, and underlines it, memorizes it and turns to it at three o'clock in the morning when they're, having, when they're having difficulties or pain and opens it first thing in the morning, opens it whenever they, whenever they feel compelled to know God and over the lifetime of that person as they open that Bible, it might be broken physically, but the Bible that they have put inside their heart, no one can ever take away from them. I think we take the Bible for granted. I know I do. I know I do. I've got probably eight Bibles on two different bookshelves stacked on top of each other. We have so many copies of it. And yet I think about myself. Jude's church, the men and women in Jude's church didn't have copies of the Bible. It was too expensive. Jude probably had a copy of the Bible. Maybe Jude's elder board, if he had such a thing, had a copy of the Bible. But the average person did not have a Bible. Think about that. When you leave Sunday, which is when they gathered, and you go into Monday, the only Bible that you would have is what was in your heart. The only Bible that you would have is what you memorized. Think about how that would affect the way that you listen. Think about how that would affect the way that you, when, when scripture is just read in public, how, what would it do? If we miss a verse now, we just Google it. If we don't memorize verses because it's easy just to look up the answers on openbible.com or Bible Gateway, think about if you didn't have access to the Bible. Think about if one day it became illegal to own one. How much of God would you know because of what you studied diligently and what you put inside your heart if your Bible was ever taken from you? How would you be able to face life? Would you have the words of life in you? Now, I hope that this never happens. I was thinking about this this week, and it was really burdensome to me. If it ever became illegal to be a Christian in this country and your Bible was confiscated, how much of the Bible would you have inside of you? It was a really powerful point to me because I know that there's more that I could read. There's more that I could study. These are God's words, and I want to put them into my heart. Not as a legalistic type of thing, but just to get them in there. And I'll tell you why. I was in, an, I was in a situation where this made so much sense to me, and it, and it showed me something. There's times where you just can't grab your Bible. Uh, as many of you know, I, I recently fell off of a house. Uh, for those of you who don't know that, I, I fell off of a house. Uh, there you go, you know it. And uh, as I was falling, I didn't have time to reach and grab my iPhone as I was spiraling out of control 20 feet down the roof to look up God's love for me or God's sovereignty. I didn't have time for any of that. I, I was totally out of control, but yet it was the most peaceful I had ever felt. And the reason that it was is because three specific verses came to my mind as I was falling. Time is so weird. People always say time goes so slow when something like that has happened. It's totally true. I remember Philippians 4 coming into my mind as I was falling. 
that the peace that surpasses understanding, God will grant it to you. I wasn't, at least in my mind, if you would have seen a video of it, which there are none to my knowledge, go to YouTube and see if you can find it. But if there were a video of it, I don't think I was flailing about out of control. I felt at peace because I remembered the word that Paul had spoken to the Philippians, that the peace of Christ will overcome you. And it's far better than human understanding. I remember that. I remember Philippians 1.21, to live as Christ and to die as gain. I remember literally, the fall couldn't have been more than three seconds, but I remember thinking, God, you're a better husband than I am. You're a better father than I am. You're a better provider than I am. And if this is the last moment that I have on earth, as much as I'm going to miss my family, as much as I think that they would miss me, I'm okay because I know who you are. And I'm okay to meet you right now. Like I was totally surrendered. And I can't even claim that that was from me. That was the Holy Spirit working in me, using the word that was already in there. I didn't actively think about this. These are things that just came to my mind. The other verse is that he who began a good work in you will see it through to the day of completion. These three verses were blanketing me as I was falling down this roof. And when I got up, I didn't feel worried. I didn't feel fearful. I just felt total gratitude to God. I didn't have time to turn to a Bible. That's what I'm saying. There will be times in your life when you don't have time to turn to a Bible. I wrote down in my notes, I want you to experience the same things, but not to fall off a house. I wrote that down. But when things happen in your life and you can't just grab a Bible, what I'm saying is I want the Bible to be so deeply into you that it just happens, that you just, the Spirit of God just starts using the Word to minister to your heart. The Spirit of God just starts using His Word to, to help you, to heal you, to make you feel love, to make you feel grace and mercy and peace. What I'm saying is, is that you might not always have a Bible, but you can put the Bible down in your heart, and it is beautiful when the Spirit of God starts doing it. And it's faster than you can grab a Bible. You might be looking for that verse for 20 minutes, but the Holy Spirit's got it. As Christians, practically, the way that we can do this is we can memorize Passages of Scripture, that's the way that this happened for me. We can remember core doctrines like justification, sanctification, grace, mercy, love. We can learn what those terms mean and Bible verses that, that, that point us to those things. The point is, is that we must be eager to learn. And I'll, I'll, again, I'll throw out um, a word that I think I've heard someone term before. The reason why I'm, I'm hitting this so hard is because in America we have this sort of surrogate spirituality that happens. We look to our pastors, we look to our leaders, we look to our elders, we look to our deacons, and they know the Word of God. I don't need to learn it like they know it. I don't need to read it like they read it because they've got it. I show up to Sunday and I learn from them, and, and that's, that's just what I do. I would say that in the earliest days of your faith, it is a good thing to let someone else help you. It's like a baby bird. The mother chews up the worms and spits it into their mouth. As a baby Christian, it is a good thing to have someone with you and helping you and leading you and talking to you and digesting the concepts and helping you understand it. That's a totally a good thing. But at some point, nature kicks in and the bird jumps out of the nest. And at some point, the Holy Spirit has to kick in and say, you can do this, you can read this, you can understand this. One of the fundamental reasons that I believe that Jude's church was struggling was because they were waiting on Jude and the other pastors and elders to rescue them when the Bible was totally sufficient for them. This is why Jude tells them to contend, because contending is for all Christians, not just a certain group of Christians. And I think this is why the American church limps along in immaturity and frailty, because so many people are relegating their spiritual life to someone else to the, either their wife or their husband or their pastor or their small group leader. Our walk with Christ is our responsibility, and we must remember the words of Christ. We must not wait for someone else to do that for us. That's what I mean by surrogate Christianity. And I get it, right? We take our car to the expert, because if you had me fix your car, it wouldn't work. So there's a, there's a point here to where we take things to the experts. We, when we have a leaky roof, we, we let the experts fix it. But when it comes to your soul, there are no experts over what God is doing in your life. 
You have a responsibility to know the words of Christ. You have a responsibility to get into the word. No one can do that for you. Now, at this church, we do preach and we try to unpack things in a deep way. And maybe there's times where we talk about things that maybe you've never thought about before. And one of the things that I've seen happen is that Christians can get discouraged because they say, you know, I can't read the Bible like we read it in church, or I can't get all of the things out of it like we got out of it in church, and that's discouraging. But I would just say that you're not called to read the Bible like anyone else. You're called to read it at your level. You're called to read it at the level where you can understand it. And the, the most brilliant theologians in the world still find new things buried in these texts, and the most baby Christian still weeps over the simple truth. Children can understand it. If we just treat our engagement with the Bible as something that we do at church, that would be like going to a five-star restaurant and only eating one day out of the week and then going home and starving us, ourselves for six days because we can't produce the kind of quality that we get at the five-star restaurant. That would be dangerous. That would leave us malnourished. Even if the only thing you have at home is a pack of ramen, it's better than nothing. Maybe science would disagree with me. I don't actually know the science on that. But you get my point. If we don't have a steady stream of nourishment, we will atrophy. Our bones and our muscles will actually decay. And I don't want that for any of you spiritually. I don't want your your spiritual muscles to become decayed and atrophied. I want you to just have a relationship with God that's dynamic, where you read the words and, and you're ministered to by them. Jude assumes that encouragement and hope come from knowing the Bible. That's the first thing that he is telling us to remember. Remember to stand on the word of God alone. The second thing that he wants us to remember is that we cannot stand by our power alone. Now, we might listen to a message like this and we might be tempted to think, all right, I need to go home and I need to just uh, grit it out. I need to spend 100 hours of effort and by sheer grit and determination, I'm going to memorize the entire book of Psalms. No, you're not. That's not the heart, though, even of what Jude is saying. He's not saying to go home in some sort of meritorious legalism to just start grinding it out with the Bible. That's not what he's saying. Look at what he says in verse 19 through 20. These, the false teachers, are the ones who cause divisions. They're worldly-minded, and they're devoid of the Spirit. What Jude is saying is that these men don't know the Bible. They're worldly-minded because they don't have the Spirit. What he's saying is that we can't even know what the Bible's saying without the Spirit of God, that we can't understand what the Bible is saying without the Spirit of God, that we can't apply the Bible without the Spirit of God. What Jude is saying is that we cannot, by our own power and by our own will and by our own intelligence, understand the Bible. We need help, and we need help from the Spirit of God. What I love about this passage is that in Jude 17, now the Bible does this a lot. You have to pay attention to the markers. He says, but you beloved, but you beloved, remember the word. In verse 20, he says, but you beloved. This is what would be called a parallelism here. Jude is saying the same word and he's trying to draw our attention to two major things that we're supposed to remember. We're to remember the Word of God and we're to remember the Spirit of God. But, Christian, you must remember that you cannot stand on your power alone. You must stand on the Spirit of God. It's both. We don't stand by our own power, and yet we don't just stand on the Bible alone. There's many Christians who stand completely on the Bible. Let's call them truth warriors. And they're angry and they're hateful. And they're always in arguments. They're always in debates. And, and they throw up the Bible in your face like it's a weapon. That is not what Jude is saying. And then there's the spiritual Christians who don't know anything about the Bible, but they're so in touch with the Spirit, and it's this amorphous thing. That is not what Jude is saying. Jude is saying that it is both Spirit and in truth, that if we're going to navigate this life and understand joy and peace and contentment and everything else, that we must have both Spirit and truth. 
Jude is contrasting these false prophets, the one who calls divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. They don't know the Word. They don't have the Spirit with the Christians who have both. Both the Word of God. Both the Spirit of God. It's both. Now, we don't have time tonight, I wish we did, to cover a whole theology of the Holy Spirit. But what I want to challenge you on is to, is to look and see if you can find a single verse in all of the Bible that divorces the Spirit of God from the Word of God. There's never a verse. There is never a verse where the Spirit operates in any truth that is not revealed in the Bible. There is never an instance where the, where the Bible and the Spirit are not perfectly in unity together. It always happens together. Let's look at John 4, 23 through 24 as an example. Jesus says, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Both, both spirit and truth. It's both. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jude is not arguing that we would just merely be Bible people. He's saying that we need to be spirit and truth people. We have to be both if we're going to please God. We have to be both if we're going to navigate the life that God has given us to live. We have to be both. Look at what Jude does in verse 20. He says the same thing. It's not as obvious as it is in John 4, but I want to show it to you. But you, beloved, building yourself up on the most holy faith praying in the Holy Spirit. This is truth and spirit. As we've learned, the most holy faith in Jude is always pointing to the Bible. So Jude is saying, build yourself up on the Bible and that's not enough. You have to be praying in the Holy Spirit because it's not just the Bible. It's the Bible and the Spirit. It's both of these together. We have to understand that everything we do if it is at all glorifying to God, is motivated by the Spirit. We're not righteous. We're not able. If it weren't for the Spirit of God, none of us would be here. If it weren't for the Spirit of God, none of us would love God. If it weren't for the Spirit of God, none of us would have chosen to follow Christ. He did the work inside of us. He motivated us. He redeemed us. He saved us. The Spirit of God illuminated us. We are totally dependent when we pray, when we serve, when we parent, when we work, and when we do anything else. We're totally dependent upon the Spirit of God. In fact, we can't even read our Bibles without the Spirit of God. He leads us to the Word. He makes us love the Word. He makes us understand the Word. The Spirit of God always works together with the Word of God. That's the point. We need to remember both. The third thing, this is what we'll close on, is that we must remember to stand until Christ returns, until he comes to call us home. Now, if you'll notice, we skipped verse 18 for a purpose. We dealt with 17, and then we skipped over to 19, and there's a reason that we did that. It's like when you go to a sandwich store, you don't buy the sandwich for the bread. It's because the meat that's in the middle, Right? Tell me if anyone's here who just buys the sandwich for the bread. Jude puts this verse in the middle for a reason. And it's a Jewish reason, not an American reason. To us in America, we think about things linearly. We think about we have point A, point B, and we close with point C. We build things toward dramatic conclusions. Our entire society is built on a linear framework. Symphonies always crescendo at the end. Fireworks shows always light up the sky the brightest at the end. Movies close at the end and you don't read novels where the end is at the middle. That doesn't make sense to us. But that's the way that a Jewish person would think. A Jewish person doesn't think in a linear progression. They think in a circular way where the point is in the center. See, for a Hebrew, an argument is not structured to where you have to wait until the end to find out what it is. It's that the point is in the middle so that it flows out into everything. That the beginning and the end both are connected with it and that it's central. It's important that we understand this because this is what Jude is doing. Verse 17 and verse 19 are surrounded by verse 18 and you might be asking yourself, why? I get that the Bible is something that is utterly important and I get that the Holy Spirit is utterly important. Why is this verse 
verse 18 at the center of Jude's argument. Look at what it says. In the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. Why would Jude make a verse on the end times his central thesis? Like, I almost want to tell Jude, Jude, do you not know that there's been no doctrine in all of church history that's caused more confusion than the doctrine of the end times? If you go to a bookstore and you look on books on the end times, almost none of them agree with each other. And there's probably 10,000 perspectives on this. Why would Jude make a doctrine like this the central point of his message? And I think it's because we don't understand how a Jewish person thinks. You see, a Jewish person does not think about the end times as future. A Jewish person, a Jewish Christian, thinks about the end times as present. They don't think about the end times as something that is far off in the future. They think about the end times as something that is happening right now. Look at what Jude says. In the last time, that makes us immediately want to think about the end. That makes us think about years and years and years in the future. In the last time, Jude says, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. Now, we've studied this book. Mockers had already come into the church. False teachers had already come into the church. So either Jude has lost his mind and he's saying, in the end times, the exact same things that are happening right now are going to happen. Or he's saying that me, you, and everyone in his church and everyone in our church are living in the end times. That's what Jude is saying. Now, think about it this way. Here's an analogy. If someone came up to you, we know this is what Jude is saying, if someone came up to you and said, I'm really struggling with this particular sin, can you help me? And you said, absolutely. In about 4,000 years, someone's going to come along and they're going to they're conquer this particular sin and, and be encouraged. You're going to think to yourself, well, that wasn't very helpful. I'm asking you about my situation. I'm not asking you about 2,000, 4,000 years from now. Jude's not doing that either. Jude's not writing a letter to his church and saying, I know what you're struggling with, but let me deviate for a moment to talk about what's happening 2,000, 3,000 years from now. He's talking to them in their time. He's talking to them saying that we are living in the end times. Let me give you another couple examples. The New Testament is clear about this, but it's not a very common thought in the American church or the modern church that, that we're living in the end times. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, He's talking to Timothy, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Again, we want to think about future here, but hold on. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient of parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What a list holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And then Paul says, avoid such men. Why would Paul tell Timothy to avoid these people if they were totally future, if he would never interact with them? Paul is telling them to avoid them because they're living in the end times. These kinds of people have always existed and have always come into the church. John the apostle, when he wrote his epistle, he wrote in verse 18, children, it is the last hour. He's not saying that we're waiting on some future period of time. He's saying that it is now the last hour. It is now the end times. So 2,000 years from now, we are still living in the end times. We are living in the last days is what Jude and Revelation or Jude and John are saying. Revelation, a book that everyone kind of unanimously, it seems like, believes is totally future. You look up books on Revelation, it's all about the future. Revelation begins this way. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Revelation is not a book about all these signs that are going to be totally irrelevant to John's situation. This is a book that was meant to encourage him about things that must soon take place. Now, I don't want to get too far off topic here. We could spend weeks here. I'm going to bring us back. I'm just trying to show you this is how Jewish people thought about the end times. Now, I want to give you one more little point. Jewish people understood that the end times began with two 
fundamental, earth-shattering, catastrophic events in the Bible. What were they? The end times began when the Spirit of God was poured out on believers at Pentecost and when the Word of God was written in its final form in the New Testament, Spirit and Truth. Jude has said in verse 17, remember the Word, and in verse 19 and 20, remember the Spirit, and we see in New Testament history that these two things are central to the end times, the giving of the Holy Spirit and the giving of the Word. Look at what it says in Acts chapter 2. It says, and it shall be in the last days that I will pour out my spirit upon all mankind. And evidence that the end times have come is that the spirit of God now dwells within the believers. That is something that had never happened in all of human history. But when Christ came and when Christ died on the cross and when he gave the spirit, that's a sign that the end is here. In Hebrews 2, it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, when he spoke in the Old Testament and he revealed scripture to those people, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The author of Hebrews is comparing the transmission of the Bible in the Old Testament by the Spirit with this transmission of the New Testament by the authority of Christ. And he's saying that the last days are evidenced by the fact that we have a Bible. Spirit and truth are evidences of the fact that we are living in the end times. And that is why Jude makes this point so unbelievably central with the word and with the spirit buffeting these two together. They're all interconnected because what he is trying to say is that as we live in the end times, as we live in the times when mockers exist, as we live in the times where people hurt us, as we live in the times when pain happens and when cancer happens and when death happens and when loved ones hurt us and when spouses cheat, when we live in the end times, when all these things happen, that we can be at peace because of the Word of God and the Spirit of God because that is the two weapons that God has given us to combat this time that we're living in while we're waiting on Jesus Christ to return. We are living in the end days, but it's not the final day. The final day is when Jesus Christ returns. And until then, we are told to wait with hope. We are told to wait, remembering the word of God and remembering that the spirit of God will help us while we wait during these dark days. That is what Jude is trying to communicate. Now, I want us to end. I said that already. I really want us to end now with 2 Peter. Second Peter came after the book of Jude, and Second Peter chapter 2 is the book of Jude expanded. Peter borrows content from the book of Jude, and he goes deeper than Jude goes, and he explains it more fully than Jude explains it. And I want us to hear this because I want us to see the point. Peter says this, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lust. That's the exact same thing Judas said. But now watch how Peter will make this more clear. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? Apparently what was going on in this early church was that men were raising up mocking Christ because they said Christ hasn't returned yet. Jude, you keep saying, Peter, you keep saying that we're living in the end days, but I don't see Jesus coming back. They were mocking Christ, and they were saying that maybe Christ isn't God. They were saying maybe Christ isn't coming back. They were saying, how can you possibly know, Jude, that, that what you're saying is right, because I don't see Jesus. That's what they're saying. Look at what Peter says. For ever since, this is still the mockers, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was before the creation. And Peter turns to them and he says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and by the water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water. But his word, the present heavens and earth being reserved for fire are kept for the day of judgment and destruction of these ungodly men. Now watch this. But do not let this one fact escape you, beloved, that the Lord, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like one day. So therefore time is not an issue with God. 
it can wait two years or 2,000 years or 10,000 years. Time does not matter. But look at what Peter says. The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, wishing for, not wishing for any of you to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What Jude is saying is that Christ is waiting until every lost sheep is found. He's not coming back to destroy this earth arbitrarily or flippantly. He's waiting. The reason why evil still exists in the world is because Christ is graciously waiting. He's waiting so that everyone who is his will come home to him. So if you are not a Christian today, or if you are not sure if you're a Christian today, do business with Jesus because he has been graciously waiting for you. But if you're a Christian, I want you to understand the three things that Jude has been saying to us today, that we live in dark times. We live in times when the world distresses us and frustrates us, and it's, and it's, it's hard, and to say the least. We have pain almost all the time. Jesus said that this world is going to be painful, but don't worry, I've overcome the world. What I want you to realize is that as we live in these last days, we have two things that we can do. We remember the word of God, and we remember that we only live, we only move, we only breathe by the Spirit of God. And those two things will encourage you and give you hope while we wait. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the fact that Jesus is coming back. Father, I thank you so much for the fact that you are righteous and that you are that you are just and that, Lord, you will make all things right again. Lord, I'm remembering the passage in Revelation where you said that death will be no more, tears will be no more, pain will be no more, that, that Lord, you're going to totally redeem this fallen planet and you're going to make a new world where we're going to live with you for all of eternity. And Lord, I yearn for that day. Lord, sometimes I get so frustrated living in this world and looking at the news and watching all of the things that are happening in this country and watching politicians completely deny you and watching whole political parties just run as fast as they possibly can away from you. And God, I get so discouraged. But God, I pray that you would elevate my gaze and you would elevate our gaze. Lord, I pray for repentance, that you would help me not be so discouraged, that you would help me trust you, that you would help us trust you, that you would help us wait patiently as you are not ready to return yet. Lord, I pray that while we wait, that we would share the gospel with people. Lord, I pray that as we wait, that we would have hope. Lord, I pray that as we wait, like your text said tonight, that we would, that we would know you and we would meet you in the pages of the Bible. And that, God, we would, we would have a dynamic relationship with your spirit. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who's discouraged, that you would encourage them. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has felt pain and felt brokenness in this season, that, Lord, that you would heal them. And, Lord, I just pray that as we leave here tonight, that, Lord, we would leave here singing, that we would leave here singing praises to you, our King. In Christ's name, amen.